Right before King David died, he told his son Solomon to be strong, follow God's ways, and no matter what, not to worship other gods. Shortly after Solomon took over as king, God appeared to him and said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Worried about following in his father's footsteps, Solomon asked God to give him wisdom, to know the difference between right and wrong. God not only promised to give Solomon wisdom, but great riches and honor as well. The first test of Solomon's wisdom happened when two prostitutes came to him. There was a young child that each of them claimed was theirs. Solomon knew one of them had to be lying. So he asked his servants to bring out a sword and suggested to the woman that he cut the boy in two and give each of them half. One of the women was so worried that the boy would be killed that she immediately asked Solomon to give the child to the other woman. Solomon saw her love and protection and knew that it had to be her baby, so he gave the boy to her. The Israelites were in awe of Solomon's great wisdom. He ruled for many years, growing in wealth and fame. He also wrote down many wise sayings called Proverbs. During his reign, Solomon planned to finish building the temple his father, David, wanted to build. They built a temple that was not incredibly large, but was unbelievably beautiful and detailed. It was 90 feet by 30 feet and had two bronze pillars that led into the place where sacrifices were made. When it was finished, Solomon and the other leaders sacrificed a huge number of animals in worship to God. When they did, the whole temple filled with a thick cloud of smoke. Solomon prayed, asking God to meet the Israelites in the temple and hear their prayers. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from the sky and burned up the animal sacrifices. That night, God appeared to Solomon again and promised to bless him in all that he did, as long as he would keep following God. In some areas, Solomon did follow what God told him to, but in others, like worshiping other gods, he failed. Because of this, the kingdom of Israel would be taken from his sons, and they would not enjoy the peaceful, successful reign that he had. Well, good morning, church. How's everyone doing today? All right, that's, we could do a little bit better than that. How's everyone doing today? Good, good, good. Hey, I uh, just want to let you know, um, update on Dustin. They made it to Kenya safely. The whole family were really excited about their opportunity. Thank you, yeah. I know they really appreciate all the money that uh, we raised for uh, the street kids there in Kenya as well and the scholarships. And uh, if you can follow them on Facebook, on his Facebook page, and uh, they've already shared so many beautiful pictures, and uh, I know God's going to use them in some tremendous ways these next couple weeks. And I'm going to just say, Dustin, get back by Christmas Eve, though. Please get back by Christmas Eve, all right? Um, we're going to be, uh, we're in week 13 of this story. We're going through the Bible in 31 weeks. We're at week 13, and uh, we're talking about Solomon today, King Solomon, the king who had it all. And we're going to start off in Ecclesiastes 1, 1 and 2. Ecclesiastes 1 will be there quite a bit this morning in Ecclesiastes. And uh, it just says this, is the words of the teacher, son of David in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. 
Talk about meaningless. I uh, heard a story. This is kind of a family favorite. I remember my dad sharing this story about a wide mouth frog. I don't know if anybody's heard the story of the wide mouth frog. Anybody ever heard this story about the wide mouth frog? A couple of you maybe. Uh, anyways, there's this wide mouth frog that was hopping through the wilderness. And um, all of a sudden, this wide mouth frog comes across this squirrel and he says, Hi, I'm a wide mouth frog. What do you like to eat? And the squirrel looked at him, he's kind of strangely, what, what is this frog doing? He says, well, I like vegetables and seeds, but I, I really like nuts. And so the frog keeps hopping, and, and he comes across this rabbit, and he says, hey, I'm a wide-mouthed frog, what do you like to eat? And the rabbit looks at him, and he says, well, I like leaves and, and grass, but, but I really like carrots. So the frog keeps hopping along, and he finally comes across this snake. And he says, hi, I'm a wide mouth frog. What do you like to eat? And the snakes looked at him and he says, well, I like insects and rodents, but I really like wide mouth frogs. And the frog looked at me and he said, would you say? <laughs> I told you it was meaningless, it's ridiculous, but I say that. I share that story for this reason, because I don't know if you know this about frogs, but if you would put a frog in a pot of hot boiling water, that frog would jump out instantly. But if you put the frog in lukewarm water and then just gradually turn up that heat, that frog will fry in that water. I didn't test that out personally. I thought that would not be a good illustration for up on stage, I'd have Peter after me. But I've heard that many times, that if you put that frog in lukewarm water and turn up the heat, that frog will fry. And that's kind of the story that we see today, and that's kind of the life of Solomon. For 40 years, David led Israel and established her firmly in the promised land. And upon David's death, his son Solomon succeeded him as king. Solomon's reign, was with, with Sol Solomon's reign began with a series of defining events. He first married the daughter of the Egyptian pharaoh, and ironically, the nation who had once enslaved Israel now sought out the good graces of God's people, the Israelites. Then God appeared to Solomon in a dream and offered Solomon to grant his heart's desire. And Solomon wisely chose wisdom. He wanted to lead God's people with honor. Grace And God loved this answer, and he gave him wisdom, but he also decided, I'm going to give him wealth and honor as well. Solomon's great wisdom became the hallmark of his reign, and people from all around the world sought him out. And Solomon demonstrated that the cornerstone of all wisdom is this, the fear of the holy God. In 1 Kings 3, it says this, it says, And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of its of his father David, but it wouldn't last. Solomon's reign was marked with peace and prosperity, and he built this magnificent temple that was beyond compare. But even Solomon humbly recognized that this temple could not sufficiently contain God. He also built a royal palace, which took twice as long to build uh, than the temple. And it was basically a small fortress, which was needed given the things that he was going to get into later on. His wealth and his wisdom were legendary. And in 1 Kings 4, it says this, And God's, 
gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. That Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all of the men of the east and all the wisdom of, of Egypt and men of all nations from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. King Solomon experienced world-renowned success and recognition. His reign was known for its peace and prosperity. He was a great king. He was a great leader, but... And there's a huge but in this story. In 1 Kings 11, it says this, But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites, from the nation of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn your hearts away from hearts after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. And it says that he had 700 wives and princesses and 300 concubines. Imagine explaining that to a child. I remember thinking as a child that he was just a really good farmer growing up. Then when I was a teen, I thought, you know, Solomon was the man, and, uh, and, and now 700 wives. I'm like, uh, no, all right? One is tough. I mean, um, <laughs> one is tough to live without, live without, all right? Maybe if Solomon would have found my wife Audra first, he wouldn't, need, wouldn't have needed 699 others, all right? Thank you. I, you know, I, maybe I'd take 699 more of Audra. I don't know, yeah. That, that doesn't sound good either, does it? That's, no, all right. Sorry, sorry, all right. But here's the but. It says, and his wives turned away his heart. And not only did they turn away his heart from God, but Solomon also started to worship their gods. And it wasn't just a matter of, matter of adultery, it was also idolatry. And there was great consequence to Solomon's sin. We find God's wrath towards Solomon at the end of 1 Kings 11, telling Solomon that he is going to tear this kingdom away from him during his son's reign. And he was going to raise up these adversaries against Solomon, and there would be peace no more. It seems like every week that we've been in the story with our students, that these three principles, these three truths have come out. There's always blessing behind obedience. There's always consequence to sin, and God's way is the best way, and this, there's no difference in Solomon's life. You see, today we're going to look at a couple passages in Ecclesiastes which Solomon wrote towards the end of his life in a reflection of a life that was filled with so many grand accomplishments and great pleasures, but was marred with every kind of temptation and sin. And we're just going to see this stark contrast between the worldly wisdom which Solomon fell prey to because he dove headfirst into these lukewarm waters and the deep godly wisdom that being all in for him, for God, brings. First point is this, is that godly wisdom isn't about your temptation as much as it is about your temperature that will lead to either great regret or reward in your life. See, we all have temptation, each and every one of us, but Solomon wasn't able to handle it because his heart 
was turned away from God. And we see that all throughout Ecclesiastes that there is much regret where there should have been much reward. Ecclesiastes 2, Solomon says this, To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Matthew Henry's concise commentary shares it this way, Riches are a blessing or a curse to a man according to as he has or has not a heart to make a good use of them. To those that are accepted of the Lord, he gives joy and satisfaction in the knowledge and love of him. But to the sinner, who he allots labor, sorrow, vanity, and vexation in a seeking and a worldly portion, which yet afterwards comes into better hands. Let the sinner seriously consider his latter end to seek a lasting portion in the love of Christ and the blessing it bestows is the only way to true and satisfying enjoyment even in this present world. Isn't that good? Randy Frazee, writer of the story, defines godly wisdom this way. Godly wisdom is the skill to consistently apply common sense with a discerning spirit, learning from experience or trusted manners filtered through the word and will of God, leading to optimal success, and I love this, and satisfaction in life. See, whenever it comes to temptation, our example is Jesus Christ, who every single time beats a path directly to, to God's word and to God's will. Whenever and wherever there is temptation, he do, directly goes right to God and God's word. And I think really the litmus test is this. Is your lifestyle, is your life, is your life choices bringing you regret or reward? Is your lifestyle bringing you sorrow or satisfaction? Whenever I thought about King Solomon and his life, and some of these scriptures in Ecclesiastes, meaningless, meaningless, I couldn't help but think about Pistol Pete Maravich. Now that name might not mean much to you, but as a basketball fan, Pistol Pete Maravich was the man. When he was a kid, he decided his goals were going to be this. He wanted to win a championship. He wanted to make a million dollars, which was outrageous when he was a kid. And he wanted to be the best there ever was. And he gave his life to basketball. Morning, noon, and night, you did not see Pistol Pete without a basketball growing up. He slept with his basketball. And he became a great basketball, probably the, one of the greatest ever. He scored 44 points a game in college, more, way more than anyone else. He had records upon records, accolades. He was given the keys to the city. He had everything that basketball could offer, and basketball was really good to him. It gave him everything, everything but satisfaction, everything but contentment, everything but joy. And I've said it a thousand times, basketball is a great game, but it's an awful God. And during Pete's pro career, he went searching for that contentment and satisfaction. He tried yoga, he tried transcendental meditation, he tried several different religions, including Hinduism and karma, but nothing seemed to satisfy. He decided he was just going to live to be 150, and he tried all these diets 
He tried to be a vegetarian or a fruitarian. He tried to fast. He would go on these 25-day fasts. But still, he didn't find satisfaction. Just these brief interludes of gratification, much life is, like his life. By the early 80s, basketball just wasn't fun anymore. And he retired after a relatively short career. And he went home to his family and he would stay in his home for weeks at a time. No real purpose, no real direction. He just was. He considered suicide many times. He had a huge name and such a small life. One night he started to think about all the sin in his life. He thought about the time when he was 18 and he was presented the gospel of Jesus Christ and he said, no, I have too much to lose to follow Jesus. And he said he couldn't sleep that night. He got to be early in the morning and with tears in his eyes, he finally looked to the Lord. He said, God, I've punched you. I've kicked you. I've cursed you. I've used your name in vain. I've mocked you. I've embarrassed you. I have plucked out your beard. I have done it all. Yet do you really love me? Can you really forgive someone like me with all that I have done? And he said he was about ready to go to the side of the bed and just pray to the Lord. When all of a sudden he heard God's voice, he said he heard it audibly, be strong and lift thine own heart. He tried to wake his wife that night. Jackie, did you hear that? Did you hear that? And she just turned over and looked at him and said, Pete, you really tri- you're really tripping this time. You've really gone off the edge this time, Pete. And she fell back asleep. Right, Pete turned his attention to, to God and he says, Jesus, I know you're real. And if you don't save me tonight, I won't last two more days. And he said that his life changed right there. Pistol Pete gave his life to Jesus Christ. He said later on that he didn't want to be remembered as a basketball player. He wanted to be remembered as a Christian, as a Christ follower. And he shared his testimony many times over. He even went on tour with Billy Graham for a while. He passed several years later. And I'll never forget this, the power of this sports documentary about Pistol Pete Maravich that I watched probably 25 years ago. And it spent about 59 minutes sharing how great a basketball player Pete was, but then it turned, had an interview with Pete's brother. And I'll never forget this. I didn't look this up or anything. I just remember Pete's brother saying this in this documentary about who Pete became after basketball. And he looked that camera in the eye and said, you know, if Pete were around today, you'd find him walking up and down Bourbon Street giving out tracts and sharing about Jesus Christ, his Savior. And he would find more joy in that than he ever did on the basketball court. And why is that? How is that? You know, earthly wisdom would say that you find satisfaction in accomplishments and money and fame and power and stuff, but godly wisdom is this, is that you will find contentment in things that will last. You'll find joy in things that are eternal. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and rust do not destroy. And where thieves do not break in and steal. 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, diving into lukewarm water always begins with me, myself, and I. We want to do what we want to do when we want to do it. And we think we can, hey, we can handle it. It isn't that bad. And we start isolating ourselves from accountability or staying away from people that we know will encourage us to do right. And that's where it started with Solomon. I can handle it. It isn't hurting anyone. And he really started pursuing pleasure over purpose. And he really distanced himself from his advisors and accountability. See, godly wisdom doesn't lead to independence, but rather interdependence. And Solomon knew this at the end of his life. Whenever he wrote in Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12, he says, Two are better than one, because they have good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. And also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Some of the most dangerous words that we can share as a Christian, that we can say as a Christian is this, I can live out my faith on my own. And you want to talk about jumping headfirst into lukewarm living, that is it. I can live my faith out on my own. There's a reason in Hebrews 10.25 that it says, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching when Jesus is coming back. There's a reason that those early Christians not only met on the first day of the week, but they met daily. There is a reason that Christ died for the church. Andy Stanley said this, he says, people usually drift away from their community before they drift away from their faith. And I wish I could spend more time about how we can surround ourselves by the community, how important it is to surround ourselves with the community of believers. But I will just say, I will just share that godly wisdom says that we need each other. You need the church. I need the church. We need each other. We were designed for companionship, not isolation. We were designed for intimacy, not loneliness. And we are not here to serve ourselves, but we are here to serve God and others. And we are stronger, we are safer, and we shine brighter together. Solomon came to this conclusion that self-serving was empty and it was meaningless. And I know for me that I would love just to have enough success to retire on the golf course and play golf every single day. Do what I want, when I want to do it, and it would be golf all the time. And I know that would be really nice, but godly wisdom says that that will not fulfill you. And it will only bring regret. Ecclesiastes 12 says, The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails give, given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Godly wisdom isn't about exceptional achievement, but it is about exclusive adoration. 
Matthew 6, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I've heard it said many times that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And over and over and over again throughout history, this is true on a macro level and a micro level. Worldly wisdom would look at all that King Solomon had done, all the grand buildings, all the wealth, all the respect and adoration of the kings around the world. He was the wisest, he was the richest, he was the most powerful man on the planet. He was the king who had it all, wine, women, and pleasure. And the world would say, wow, what an amazing life. What a great man, what a great king. But godly wisdom would say, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Godly wisdom says this, hey, you want a real king? You want a real king? Here it is. Conceived in a virgin, born in a stable, laid in a manger, witnessed by lowly shepherds, son of a carpenter from a lowly village called Nazareth. Not a place to lie his head. A suffering servant, betrayed by his followers, denied by his friends, hated by the world, and he wore a crown of thorns. He died on the cross for my sin and your sin. But he rose from the grave. He conquered death so that his people could live. He's the great I am. He's the good shepherd. He's the prince of peace. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the Lord of all lords and the king of all kings. He's my king. Is he your king today? I mean, what good would it be to gain the whole world, yet forfeit your very own soul? This week, one of God's great servants, Donna Smith, passed away. And I got to share some scripture and pray with the family as Donna took some of her last breaths this side of heaven. And we laughed together and we cried together as we remembered Donna's life. What a special person. And I think that many would look at Donna's life and just think very, just very ordinary. Many might say that she really didn't do anything significant. She didn't have a huge house. She didn't have a flashy car. She never did figure out how to turn the TV on. But Donna lived a great life. Whenever she could figure out how to answer her phone, whenever I'd call, she said, yes, Andre, I'll be right there. How can I help? How can I serve? She served in children's ministry for over 30 years here at East Point in Norton Church of Christ, which we used to be when we were in, in Whitehall. She was always going the extra mile for her kids, and she loved them like they were her own. We read several scriptures together Wednesday afternoon, but there was one I said, we got to read this one, because this exemplifies Donna. It's in Matthew 20 when the disciples are arguing about who the greatest is, who's going to sit at the right hand of the throne of God. And Jesus finally stops and he said, hold on. He says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great 
among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. And just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that was Donna. And that was Donna's life given away. It was great life. And I know that she's heard those words this week, well done. Thou good and faithful servant, well done. This morning, I couldn't think of a better way to end this message. A little bit of godly wisdom, godly wisdom than this. In the morning, when I rise. In the morning, when I rise. In the morning, when I rise, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. And when I am alone, or when I am alone, when I am alone, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. And when I come to die, or when I come to die, and when I come to die, give me Jesus. You can have all this world. You can have all this world. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus. Is that your prayer this morning? Is that your life? I know that God wants us to be all in for him. To dive in those deep waters of godly wisdom. Let's pray. God, I thank you for how you love us in spite of our decisions. You love us in spite of our choices. And I pray that each one of us knows your grace and knows your mercy and knows your love that you sent through your son, Jesus Christ. And it's this Christmas season we get to celebrate the hope and the peace that we have because of that great love. Because of your son, Jesus, who came as a baby, came to be an example to each one of us and to ultimately die for our sins. Help us to always keep our eyes fixed and focused on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured that cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Help us to be intent on doing your will rather than ours. Help us to practice godly wisdom rather than worldly wisdom. We love you. We thank you for who you are. And pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.